0: Hi, this is Pastor Grayson Gilbert from Missio Dei Fellowship of Kenosha, Wisconsin. I'm thankful you found our sermons and I hope that they've been an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ. This sermon was, however, preached to and for the people that God has entrusted to me here. We would ask that if you are in our area, we would encourage you to come and worship with us, but that if you are not in our area, know that these sermons, while valuable resources, are simply no replacement for your own local church. And so in light of that, we would say you are to submit yourself to the faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Psalm 55. Now, today we come to this psalm and it's a psalm that's attributed to King David. And ultimately what it does in short is just tell us a psalm or give us an idea of just incredible betrayal. Now, we don't know the specifics of that entire story, nor do we know the historical setting everything of this took place in. But the particulars of that story don't really matter nearly as much as what the psalm actually has to teach us, which is a quite simple principle. The simple reality is that every single one of you will face betrayal in this life at some point. If you haven't already faced it, you will face it. You may face it in the workplace, you may face it with family or friends who turn on you, you may even face it within the walls of this very church someday. If you're faithful in giving the gospel to people and walking in the footsteps of your Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, you will undoubtedly face it simply as you become a friend to sinners. And so the question is, what will you do when you're faced with betrayal? How will you react on that day? Another way of simply asking that is, how will your theology of betrayal manifest itself or be reflected on that day when it comes? The simple question then I must ask is, do you even... Have a theology of betrayal. So as we'll see today in this psalm, one of the most common ways that you'll be betrayed is by the one that you trust or even love the most. You'll pour your heart and soul out to them. You'll give them nothing but kindness. You'll spend hours upon hours with them. You'll laugh with them. You'll weep with them. You'll go to church with them and worship with them. You'll do everything with them. And as your reward, at least in this life, they will betray you. They will walk away from it all, and they'll burn every single bridge behind them on the way out. And so the question is, what do you do with that? How do you stay faithful? How do you stay, in other words, someone who is not a cynic, utterly burned by the church? Well, David gives us five key lessons to learn in what I'm going to call today the school of betrayal. And what he teaches us, though, is that this could be broadly applied in pretty much any hardship you face, so don't think that you have to just pigeonhole it to betrayal, beloved. But before I get into all of that, I want to simply walk you through the structure and the themes of this psalm, because what we're going to be doing is actually jumping back and forth. I'm not going to go consecutively, and the reason for that is rather simple, and that's because David's emotions, his thoughts, his prayers are literally all over the map throughout this psalm, so I want to trace it thematically for you. We're still going to be looking at the particular verses, and I'll exegete them for you. But first, I want to just give you an overall structure. So the psalm itself breaks three, or mainly, into three sections here. You have verses 1 through 8, and that deals with David crying out to the Lord in prayer. That's a relatively simple section. But notice the reason he actually gives here in verses 3 and 4. He, he's crying out to God because of the voice of the enemy and the pressure of the wicked. Why? Ultimately, they bring down trouble upon him. They, in anger, bear a grudge against him. And he's saying that this trouble is not merely that they talk bad about him behind his back. No, he's actually worried in verse 4 that they're going to kill him. So if you haven't figured it out by now, David is pretty much always in this position, is he not? Well, from this point on in the psalm, you can start to see him actually wrestle with all of his emotions. And this ultimately will just bleed right into the next section in verses 9 through 15. In 9 through 15, you see that David's dealing with all these evil people around him continually. And it's not that these evil people are just doing evil things that he has to witness. No, they are actually afflicting him, but the affliction goes deeper than that. The one who seeks to kill him in verses 12 through 14 and even breaking down in 20 and 21 is his best friend. This is a man he's walked through much of life with. This is a man he counted even as his equal in authority and stature. He counted him as a brother. They worshipped together. So the betrayal simply runs deeper than any other enemy that David has known. And if you've experienced this type of betrayal, you know full well all the baggage that comes with it, all the heartache that comes with that. And so much of this section is rather simple as well. In much of the psalm, you see the same reflection, but this is a man who is literally pouring out his broken heart to God. And all of this, again, is out of this place of heartache and betrayal. Now, I'll touch on more of that when we get there, but the third and final section that I want to bring your attention to is really showcasing David's full assurance in his God. As we come to the final key verses, 16 through 23, you see his confidence in God on full display. In spite of the threat on his life, in spite of the betrayal and all the emotions that come with all of that, David is confident. But he's not confident in himself. He's confident that God has heard his prayers, and that shapes the reality of what he goes to teach the congregation at the very end of this psalm. He is confident that the Lord is not merely mighty to save, not merely one who will take vengeance on the one who betrayed him, but that he will lift him up and sustain him all the days of his life. The two final verses really form a bookend with the first two verses, and it draws out this main theme of the psalm that I'm going to be hitting today, and that's essentially that God is the only sure place of refuge for his children, literally the only sure place of refuge. Notice that David begins and ends with prayer, the point he's drawing together is this very fact. Everything in between, then, just simply serves to show this reality or demonstrate this point that God alone is to be our refuge. Everything that was once stable has fallen apart around him. People seek to kill him. His closest companion has betrayed him. And his emotions certainly are not helping in the midst of that. But as all of this takes place, he just simply stops and prays, and he upholds the single greatest reality of his life. God is the one who is always upholding his saints by his mighty hand. In short, that's the whole point of this psalm, beloved, That's what enables David to keep his mind centered upon God. That's what enables him to wrangle his emotions back under control and be able to simply move forward with life because he can't escape it. And so as you keep that in the forefront of your minds, or at least I hope you do because that's what I want you to get out of this sermon, I want to show you these five lessons or principles born out of this reality that God is our refuge and how you navigate what I'm going to call the school of betrayal. Now, the first lesson is quite simple. Ultimately, you pray, right? We cry out to God in our time of need. The second lesson is that we understand that we will be betrayed in this life, often by those we love the most. The third lesson is that we simply learn to embrace the hardship, and that's probably the hardest part of it. The fourth lesson is that we ultimately entrust vengeance or leave vengeance to the Lord. And the fifth and final lesson is that we make God himself our refuge and strength. And so with that introduction, I'm going to bring you now to verse one and begin to draw out these lessons, if you will, that we learn in the school of betrayal or even just broadly speaking, hardship. And that again should be the rather obvious one in which we cry out to God in our time of need. So David's first instinct in the midst of his betrayal, notice this, literally is to pray. Right, right away in verse 1, this is how he begins. So look down with me. I want you to literally track with me the whole time. He begins by saying, give ear to my prayer, O God, and do not hide yourself from my supplication. Give heed to me and answer me. Right behind that presumption is the fact that God will actually help him in his time of need. But understand, he's not under any illusions that he can fix this situation. We'll get to that more in point three, but David is feeling the weight of his trial pressing down on him from literally every single side. He is tempted to flee. He is tempted maybe even to take his own vengeance. His emotions are wrangling all over the map. He can't get them under control because he knows that the closest one he counted as his friend has betrayed him. In other words, he's tempted to sin in all the same ways that you and I would be tempted to sin when facing such a hardship. He's especially tempted to despair, He's especially tempted to be cynical. And so just imagine all that flying at him 24-7 right now, but he stops in the midst of that chaos and grounds himself in the one he knows is in control. Right, That's what he ultimately is doing, is he's begging this sovereign God over all creation to do something only he can do. And in one sense, that's the purpose behind why we pray, is it not? Prayer is simply the recognition that God is the sovereign king over all things. He is the only one who actually has the ability to do anything about it. There's much more to prayer than simply asking for things, but when we when we pray, we are eventually always getting around to asking for something, aren't we? If you're not, I mean you should be. But the reality of what he speaks to is that there's a set of truths we kind of innately recognize in the midst of this. Right? God is sovereign and you are not. God knows ultimately what comes next in the middle of every single situation, and you don't. God has the ability to change the heart and the mind, and you do not. And behind every bit of genuine prayer is ultimately the presumption that God can do something about it. That's the amazing part, isn't it? Well, this is a truth that David knows intimately, and so what he does is just simply request that God act. It's not that he's humming and hawing and wringing his hands and thinking, oh, if only God could do something about it. No, he is literally saying, God, I need you to do this. He requests four times, it's called the command of entreaty here, that God will actually act in his time of need. He says, bend your ear to me. Do not hide from me. Give heed to me and answer me. I mean, this is a man at the desperate end of his rope here. You and I read this and we think, well, that's a bit bold, is it not? He's being a bit demanding of God. But when true hardship hits you, is this not how you pray? When you're truly at the end of your rope, are you not that urgent with your prayers before your father? All the veneer, the mask, everything gets pulled back, doesn't it? Our desperation just simply comes right to the service and you fall like a helpless child before your father because you know he is strong and mighty and you know that you're nothing but a child. The reason you do that is because you innately recognize you're frail. You innately recognize you can't do a thing. Betrayal and trials and suffering and persecution, all of these things, all they do is just remind us of our pride and self-reliance. They remind us of how weak you and I really are. When true hardship hits... Do you not recognize how utterly dependent you are on God? That's all David is doing here. That's why he starts with prayer. That's why he ends with prayer. That's why the whole thing is a prayer, beloved. And it's a brutally honest one. He's got nothing up his sleeves. He knows that. He recognizes he's powerless and helpless, but he also recognizes in the midst of that, God is not. You can read it, though, and almost sense this tinge of doubt, though, can't you? I mean, he's literally just crying out to God. Lord, bend your ear. Don't hide from me. Listen to my cries. Help me. Is that not the cry of a desperate man who just looks around and wonders, does God even care? Is he even paying attention? Do not hide from me. What does that assume in the text there? but that he feels God is hiding from him in that time. Understand, though, this is not where David stays. That's one of the incredible things about us. He's a man just like you and I, but he doesn't stay here. By faith, he just continues to pray, and he prays in a very brutally honest way. But the school of betrayal is teaching him something all the while about prayer. And it's a truth that he already knows, but it's one that you and I often forget when hardship hits. God is in control. God is our refuge and strength in times of trouble. We, we hear that and we're like, yes, amen. But it almost slips off like a Band-Aid, doesn't it? This is something in the core of his being, David utterly is convinced is true. I want you to see this now as, as we look toward the end of the psalm because I want you to see how his confidence really shifts into a completely different reality for this man. Look at verses 16 and 17 with me. <clears throat> right, he's contrasting himself with the wicked here, but he says, as for me, I shall call upon God and the Lord will maybe save me No, the Lord will save me. Evening and morning and at noon, I will complain and murmur, and he will turn me away like a petulant child. No, God will hear my voice. Do you see how his mind and heart has just shifted here? Right? He's not a man that's just, again, wallowing in despair. In the beginning, that's what you you have. The first two verses, he's a man that is crying out to God in sheer panic and heartache because of the situation. But by this man, that broken man has confidence and it's not in himself. He just utters this as a declarative reality. God shall save. I will call upon him at all times of the day. I will pour out my complaints and groans and Yahweh will not grow weary with my voice. He will hear me. He will act. He will save. How did he get here? Right? That's what we want to know if we're honest, because we're most often like the guy in verses 1 and 2. How did he become a man who was once plagued by despair and tinged with doubt to a man of great confidence? Well, much the same way, beloved, David just simply continued to pour out his heart to God. He continued to pray. He just continued. There's no magic secret sauce here. He continued to pray. But the reason why he did so is because he already knew, in fact, that God was genuinely a refuge and strength in this life. In other words, he trusted him. It was by faith that David began the prayer, and it was by faith that David ended his prayer. Despite how he wavered, despite how frantic his own heart was in the midst of everything, David turned to the Lord because he could trust him. It's that very simple answer My point to you, and this is incredibly simple, but some of you, you struggle with prayer, right? You've not yet learned to come to him for all things, and it's merely a reflection of the fact that you don't quite see him truthfully as your refuge and strength. Understand, a lack of prayer is nothing more than a display of unbelief, at least in some way, shape, or form. A prayerless life for the Christian is an oxymoron, In all things, literally, in all things, we are to come before our Heavenly Father and to pray at all times. But much of the reason why you and I don't is that we just simply don't take Him at His word. If I can remind you, look at where David started. Right? At at least look at that. He didn't come without trembling and fear, He didn't come with a heart filled with utter confidence. He came with anxiety and doubt, and he came on an emotional roller coaster, but as he continued to pray and cast his confidence in God himself, he himself grew confident. He continued to pour out his heart, he continued to let his requests be made known, and he ultimately came to embrace what he already believed. His whole prayer is just a reflection of what God has said about himself in his word. So what David just very simply does is he takes the arsenal of truth that's bound up in the very word of God and he prays it back to God. So my free, cheap advice is you, as you hear that, if you struggle to pray, take up the word. Don't let your doubts or your worries or your fears or emotions keep you from going to God in prayer. Ultimately, let that be the very fuel or the fodder for which you come before him with and pray. But take up the word with you. Pray that God would be faithful to what he's revealed himself to be. Pray that God would be faithful to his promises. Pick up the Psalms and see how just wide a array of emotion is laid out before you in raw display and recognize that no matter how you feel, beloved, God's not surprised by that, nor is he bothered by it. Go to your heavenly Father and pour out your heart. But don't simply stop there. Keep praying Day and night, all the day at noon, all day long, in other words, let your complaints and your murmurings and everything else come pouring out of your heart to your Father. Why? Because through Jesus Christ, he has promised to hear you. No matter how bad your prayers are, no matter how much you feel like you're complaining like a little child, he hears you. I mean, just think of how wonderful that reality is. Right? If you have kids, you know just as well as I do that sometimes you're like, okay, just go, right? God will never do that to you in your prayers. And you and I are just bigger kids. More than this, though, is that he's going to sustain you in the midst of it. That's the incredible reality of who God is. He is the only one who can do that. But he's also the only one who can actually fix any bit of a situation that you find yourself in. But David didn't learn to pray this way overnight. You know, for him, he actually had to be brought through the school of betrayal to learn this reality. He was a man of much prayer. He was a man of much confidence in God. We know this from Scripture. But that didn't mean that his heart was not prone to wander just like ours. But what he learned here was an incredibly vital lesson that ultimately God is his only refuge and then therefore, he ought to pray to him day and night no matter what the situation may be. For some of you, you have to actually still learn this lesson. And it's a very painful lesson. Some of you have been through this painful lesson time and time again and yet you still haven't learned it. But it's a necessary one. You're going to face hardship in this life. Specifically, you will even face betrayal. You'll face betrayal by those you love the most. That's what we're going to find in this next section. The next lesson, essentially, is that you're going to be betrayed even by those you love the most simply because the heart of man is utterly wicked. So look down with me. We're going to continue to make our way through the text. I want you to see first how he draws his attention to the motives of his enemies. So verses 2, the second half all the way through 3, notice David writes, I am restless in my complaint and I am surely distracted. Why? Because of the voice of the enemy, because of the pressure of the wicked. Again, why? Because they bring down trouble upon me and in anger they bear a grudge against me. Now these men have caused very real trouble for him, haven't they? But notice, he doesn't have any issues at this point judging their motives or their intents of their heart. You have to be very, very careful with this, right? You and I start guessing a person's motive simply because of the unknown reality. We start to think of all the ways that they've sinned against us, and we guess what's unspoken. But here, I want you to notice, if you just simply look at the text again, David ultimately knows this because these guys have said it, and they've revealed it in their actions. There's no guessing, in other words, Right, All of his distraction, his anxiety, and fear is born out of what's actually known. They've clamped down on him and put the pressure on him, and they've spoken clearly to what their intent is, and they're not just persecuting him openly, they've actually revealed their burning hatred for him. It's about as clear as you can get besides directly saying, I hate you. The point I'm making here is he can judge their motives with a clean conscience because it's not hidden. It's on display for everyone to see. Now think of how this can play out, right? I mean, just in the minutia of life, you have something that you say and your enemy just twists it, makes it completely, utterly different from anything that you were trying to say. And they just get you fumbling more and more and more and more over your words because all they're trying to do is trap you, right? We saw that with Jesus, didn't we? They're looking to kill him, so what do they do? You think of this when it comes to slandering and mocking, right? There's just that open ridicule and scorn that happens. There's that open lie that happens. There's that open seething with anger and malice. And you can tell, even just by the way that they look at you, there is nothing but hatred. For these men, they're doing all of this, but they're actually literally trying to kill him too. Understand that. This is not just... He's getting afflicted in one way, shape, or form because they're speaking negatively of him or tweeting mean tweets, so to speak. Their actions are all just a display of this same reality. His enemies surround him. He just looks at the city and he actually sees their evil prevails openly, but he starts to personify it. If you look at verses 9 through 11, I want you to see this. <clears> he <throat> says. For this reason, for I have seen violence and strife in the city, right? Day and night they go around her upon the walls. He's talking about violence and strife, actually walking about here. And iniquity and mischief are in her midst. So you've got two more. Destruction is in her midst. Oppression and deceit do not depart from her streets. He draws out seven ways that their malice and hatred toward him just continues to pour out. It's openly seen. So much so he's like, these are actual figures. They are violent. They cause strife. They sin against him. They create mischief. They bring ruin literally wherever they go. They oppress him. And they are fraudulent liars. They are always on the prowl. Their evil is so prevalent, he actually just, again, personifies all these things. He speaks of violence, strife, iniquity, mischief, destruction, oppression, deceit, as if they are actually people and they are filling the city to the brim. They walk along the walls of the city at all times of the day. He turns down the street, there they are, waiting for him. Every nook and cranny is swarming. They are ruthless, they are wicked, and they do not grow tired. It doesn't take much imagination for you to apply this reality to our own day and age, does it? Truthfully speaking, when you see a world that is dominated by the power of sin, it doesn't take much imagination to see it. You can walk into any public school, and you can see the various ways children are simply being indoctrinated to accept violence and flagrantly debaucherous sexuality— You can see it in your own city as you look back two years and find the mostly peaceful protests. But you see it each and every day. Each and every day, you just don't quite understand it or perceive it because you are swimming in it. The evil of abortion goes unchecked. We just simply go about our days. Nothing is happening. We go home, we eat, we go to sleep, we wake up the next day, and yet... Thousands upon thousands of infants are killed every day. People, children, are having their bodies mutilated, and we call that progress science. Sexual anarchy is rampant, and we call it freedom. The Christian faith is openly mocked. We call that tolerance. And if you think it's just out there, it's not within people within the church, you're only fooling yourself. <clears throat> That's all low-hanging fruit, beloved. That's all low-hanging fruit. That's all that is. Think of how simple and it is for you to just utter a lie. How often the lie goes unchecked from our lips as if there's no real consequences. But this is part of what David says embodies the very nature of the people hunting him down all the time. The lie continually prowls through the streets, seeking whom it may devour. It's equally as destructive as the man of bloodshed. That's his point. Again, we we have these respectable sins in our society that we just will safeguard and hedge around, but not David. Do you see lying that way? Scripture does. Scripture just flatly calls it wicked. Was it not one little lie that sank all of the world into the destruction and despair we see today? Has not God said, everything you experience is born out of a lie? All of these things, all of these things are always a much deeper seated issue. And that's what David now turns our attention to in verses 18 through 19. Ultimately, what he looks at as he sees these things embodied, as he sees these people <clears throat> excuse me, trying to twist everything he does and trying to kill him, his best friend even doing it, he says that these are people who have made the Lord their enemy. In other words, it's born out of this reality. He will redeem my soul, he says, picking up in verse 18, he will redeem my soul, that is God, in peace from the battle which is against me, for they are many who strive with me. God will hear them and answer them, even the one who sits enthroned from of old, with whom there is no change, and who do not fear God. Right? He's saying that that's who God's going to answer. We'll come back to deal with this a little bit more fully, but I want you to notice how David describes these men as those who just simply battle and strive against him at every turn of the day. They're always at war with him. They're always seeking to undermine him. And then he just simply says, God will answer them. What he's talking about is that God's going to pour out his vengeance and wrath upon them. But he says, these men who do not change and do not fear God, God will answer them. We, We read 19 and it breaks out a little clumsy in the English, but grammatically speaking, the reference is not that those who do not change is not referring to God himself, but rather these men who are stuck in a lack of fear in the Lord. He says when they do not change, he's not talking even about a moral reformation of their hearts. He's actually talking about it much like you and I would say, I'm going to change my shirt today, or I'm going to change up the guard, if you will. Picture it like the changing of a guard. There's never any relief. No one comes to replace them. And it just illustrates the same exact reality he laid bare in verses 9 through 11, that continually there's wickedness everywhere. It never changes hands. There's never a time where there's relief. Why? They do not fear God. That's it. That's the simple reason. They don't fear Yahweh. They do not see him as he is, as the righteous creator of all the earth, the one who is the righteous judge. And that is ultimately the reason behind every bit of it. And that's always the reason behind it. Do you understand if we would just simply look at the world as if that's the reality rather than complain about every aspect that we see is fallen and broken and distorted, that we would actually see that there, again, is one who can do something about the wickedness in this world. You and I so easily will take to Twitter or Facebook or whatever else we can to complain about it, but yet do we take that and give it to God in prayer and complain before the one who can change it. It's always the root issue. A lack of fearing God is always the root issue behind why there's evil in this life. How often do we think that way, though? We so easily get swept up in the lie of our culture that says if we throw more money at it, if we fix that broken society and, and make sure there's a dad in that home. All these things are needed, right? You need money to survive. You certainly need a father. But we are fools if we think that for a very, even a moment, that without the grace of God coming and pervading that home, that anything will ever change. Do you know what you're doing when you do that? You're literally rearranging the furniture on a sinking ship. Every bit of it's about to be swallowed up, and you're saying, let's go over here and make sure these tables and chairs are all straightened up. That's a reality we just don't comprehend as we should. It's always a lack of fear in the Lord. So how do we start? Well, we have to actually come to that base agreement with Scripture we have to stop wondering what are the reasons behind it and just simply agree with what God says, that this is the reality of the unbeliever. This was you, this was me before we even knew Christ. This is why evil in this world does not stop. But we don't stop there again. David doesn't agree with this reality and then just wallow in despair because of it. His emotions aren't reeling because, again, he sees people that are out there His emotions are all over the map because this is his best friend. This is the one whom he counted as a brother. This is the one he walked through life with, and this man turned on him. I want you to continue to see this. We're not quite leaving this reality of betrayal yet because it's such a huge part of this psalm. Look at verses 12 through 14. Notice what he says here. Right, he would talk, He's talking about just the, the very nature of his heartache through this section right here. Right, You have the reality that David is broken and despairing. He's looking at all the evil around him and <clears throat> he basically is saying, I'd, I'd be able to get over it if this was out there, so to speak. If this was just an immoral, godless society. But he says instead, for it is... Not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. I could get over it, so to speak. Nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, right? Like an invading army or an enemy of sorts. Then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion and my familiar friend. We who had sweet fellowship together walked in the house of God in the throng. Together we went and worshiped the Lord among God's people. It is you. This man was his confidant. It was his equal. He worshiped with him. He knew him better than anyone else. Or rather, at least he thought he did. When he looks back, though, he can see everything much more clearly. Again, look down to verses 20 and 21. Notice what he says here. He's speaking of this man yet again. He breaks up in the middle of it as he's displaying his confidence in God himself, but then he stops and interjects again because you're dealing with all the emotions of it. And he says, he has put forth his hands against those who were at peace with him. He has violated his covenant. His speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was at war. His words were softer than oil and yet they were drawn swords. Does that not just perfectly describe the one who is a betrayer? He's always buttering you up, and yet everything behind closed doors is that he wants to just take you down. Everything David thought he knew about this man was just a lie. That's what he's seeing here. He's like, that whole time, he was a filthy liar. He made promises. He broke his oath. He didn't treat it as anything sacred. He just basically broke it with the greatest of ease and spat on it. I worshipped with him. I loved him as my brother. He was my equal, my companion, my friend. And yet, all the while, he hated me. Imagine the weight of that betrayal. Imagine it. And for some of you, you you don't have to because you lived it or you are living it. You've already learned that lesson in a very, very painful way, and you're dealing with the scars today. The principle, again, the lesson, you'll be betrayed. You'll be betrayed by those you love most. Perhaps your wife, perhaps your husband, perhaps your friends, your family. Beloved, you will be betrayed. A sad reality is that this is not a life lesson only learned outside the walls of the church. And if you've been in the church for long enough, you know that. Again, David's own friend whom he worshipped with. Sweet fellowship, he describes it as. All gone. All gone. I'm just going to be blunt with you. You're going to experience that. You're going to experience it here. I've been in this church for years at this point, and I've had people that I literally was looking at and saying, if we die, my wife and I, if we die, they'll take our kids and raise them because they're faithful they've utterly abandoned the faith. Utterly abandoned it. We've had people that we've counseled and spent hours with and poured our lives into and poured out vast sums of money just to help them and get them out of a hole or to care for them. And you know what came of it from many of them, not just a few, but many of them, is that they up and left and they made vicious slander and lies about not just Becca and I, but the church. And you grieve because you think of them and you can't help it. You drive by a spot and you're immediately reminded of that time. (laughs) You will be betrayed, beloved. If you're going to be faithful, you'll be betrayed. Some of you here will be the betrayer. The simple reason is just as David said for these men it's that you do not fear the Lord you do not yet honor him and love him and therefore you do not honor those that you profess to love is This is not even how we saw Jesus betrayed Was it not Judas Three years with the Son of God. Three years. And he betrayed him with a kiss. There's a reason why Jesus was never impressed with the crowd. Not once. He didn't fool himself into thinking he could be free from the pain of betrayal and hardship. Even as great crowds of people surrounded him, gave him much notoriety and sing his praises, they're marveling at the miracles in his teaching and the scriptures just simply say that he did not entrust himself to mankind. Why? For he knew the hearts of all people and he knew them. Not impressed. That's the painful lesson that we have to just simply learn if you follow Christ. You will have people who come alongside you and you will sing your praises. You will try and treat them with kindness every bit of the way. They'll come to you for counsel, eat with you, laugh with you. You will count them as a friend as you worship. And they will walk away from it all. And you will have to just simply recognize that in the midst of it, in the midst of it, perhaps you entrusted yourself too much to the heart of men. sorry. So how do you learn to trust as David did? How do you learn to just simply come through all of that and recognize that God is your refuge and strength, that you don't become this bitter and closed-off person who just stops trying to evangelize, stops trying to be faithful, stops trying to care for those who you know are going to wound you even? Again, Jesus knew Judas was going to betray him. How do you wrangle with all the emotions of it? Well, the third lesson that David learned in the midst of this is that you just simply embrace the emotions. You embrace the hardship, ultimately. Notice, beginning in verse 4, I want to show you this, how, just, how blunt he is, how painfully honest he is with everything. Starting in verse 4, making our way all the way down to verse 8. I'm not going to read it, but I want to just point out these things. Look at how he, he piles words on top of one another. Right, He says, my heart is in anguish. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling have come upon me. Horror has overwhelmed me. And the way he's describing everything here is it's just his pain is ultimately unbearable. No other man can understand it, essentially. The way he describes it is as if he's just writhing in pain like a woman in labor, and his grief is so severe, his body is just twisted up. He's not just grieved over the betrayal, though. He's seized with fear because he knows they want to kill me. It's not, again, it's not mean people. They're just not saying mean things to him. They literally want him dead. The Hebrew, the way the Hebrews describes it, is as if the horror itself is just shrouding him completely. All he sees is darkness. He's in much fear. He's in depression. He's seized up in trembling. And in the very beginning, again, he wonders, does God even hear my prayers? Does God even see it? All that consumes his mind is betrayal and death. Betrayal and death. He turns one way, betrayal. He turns the other, death. That's what's on his heart. Notice how he first responds, though. Continuing from here, verse 6, he just imagines the bliss of what it would be like if he had wings like a dove and he could fly away from it all. He's like, oh, that I could just escape from it. I could retreat into the wilderness where no one could find me. I can place myself on high, free from the stormy tempest that surrounds my life right now. That it is all that it is. That sounds oddly how you and I think, doesn't it? When we hit the hardship, we're like, let's just get the heck out of here if we can. But when a real trial comes, you can't really just pull yourself away from it all, can you? When cancer comes, you can't just pick up and go and somehow the cancer's gone. It just doesn't work like that. When everybody is spoiling your reputation and slandering you and mocking you, you can't just pick up and go. These are the types of people who in today's day and age, they'll take up to the internet and give you phone calls and everything else and they will hound you down no matter where you go. When war comes, it's not exactly like you can always find a way of escape, is there? I mean, we literally have things where if you go and hide in a cave, they'll just blow up the cave. Many times, there's just no route of escape. But also, many times, fleeing from the situation at hand means a direct route of disobedience. That's the hard part. I think of those who have unbelieving spouses or children. It'd be easy to run, be easy to hide, but you can't. If you did, not only would you be disobedient, but it's not as if that heartache would not follow you. There's no route of escape from that pain. That's what David sees here, beloved. Beloved. The problem is much, much deeper than simple betrayal and death. He knows that his own temptation to flee and resolve things in his own power and in his own way just won't fix anything. It won't fix the heartache, won't take the seditious traitors away from him. And all he comes back to at a certain point is just seeing how the emotions are just ruling him. He knows the wilderness won't save him. It's not a refuge, in other words. Only God can be his refuge. Only God can be his strength. Again, think of all the ways you fall into this trap of thinking that he's not that. Re- right? Some of you want to escape the city. You want to move out to the country thinking that it's going to be a peaceful and easy life because you can have your hobby farm and your chickens and everything else. Sin will always follow you. Even if you're just by yourself, guess what's going to be there with you? your own sin. One of my favorite stories about the monks when they were in the desert is they would literally be removed from everybody and they're on opposite sides of the cliff faces shouting obscenities to one another. And then they go in and they do their prayers. (laughs) Sin will always follow you. You can't get away from it. They were trying to and yet they found they were just as mad at everybody out there with them as they were with everybody in the city. It didn't matter, ultimately. Some of you think that you can stockpile ammo and provisions. If things hit the fan, that you'll somehow survive it. But at the end of the day, death will still hunt you down. If it's God's will for you to die that day, you will die. Nothing you do will take care of that. You cannot stave off death. Even if you live for 15 more years, guess what's coming right behind you? I was talking about it with Cody this morning, just like the aches and pains that you just continually start to have as you get older. And the reality is, it's a reminder that day by day, I'm dying. Little by little, it's just death hunting me down. Some of you think that you can stave that off with health routines and everything else. All you're doing is just still going down with one foot in the grave like the rest of us. Some of you trust in family, friends, politicians, as if politicians are going to lead us into a golden era. But there is no golden age without Christ on the throne. All of it, beloved, is a grand exercise in futility because at the heart of it, what we're being driven by is our emotions. It's not the truth of God's word. Who is the only one who can be a refuge and strength in times of trouble? Will it be your spouse? Will it be your beloved son or daughter? Will it be your best friend? It will never be that. It can only be God. There is no life under the sun that's free from hardship, but there's also no life under the sun that's free from sin. What David had to learn most through the school of betrayal was that he had to embrace this hardship He just simply embraced the reality of it. All throughout this whole section, right? Verses 4 through 8, 9 through 11, 12 through 14, 19 through 20, when he's talking about his friend's betrayal, he is just literally lamenting the whole time. And every way you can think about it, he's pressed, he wants to flee, he wants relief, but he can't do anything about it. And so what he does is he prays. He entrusts himself to God, who is his refuge and strength. What came with that embrace was a sense of peace. Not that the trial was somehow gone or lifted, but that ultimately God was with him in the midst of it because God is his refuge and strength. It sounds so radically simple when you put it like that, doesn't it? But if you're honest, the hardest part about facing hardship or betrayal is that you can't push away the emotions of it. I mean, I'm a guy who literally has the emotional equivalency of a rock, and beloved, I still have feelings, okay? It's just the reality of it. You can't escape those things. If you're a human being, you're going to have those feelings, no matter how stoic you may be. The reality, though, is it's not so important that you have emotions. It's what you do with them. It's how you respond to those emotions. Who is the one that you come to and cast your cares before as if that is the only sole refuge and strength you have, right? Are you turning to something in this life or some other person as if that's going to help stave off the fear or the depression or the anxiety or the unrighteous anger or whatever it else that you're dealing with? Or do you go to the one who is your Lord and Savior? Nothing else can deliver us. What you and I must do every single time is simply come back to the one who is our refuge and strength, not just in this life, but in the life to come. Pour out your heart to your heavenly Father. Be brutally honest about it. Brutally honest about it. Admit you're afraid. Admit it. Admit that you're sad or you're angry or that you're depressed or that you're driven by... Anxiety or unbelief. Does God not already know? And when you admit that, then start to pour out your requests. Why? Because God is the only one who can actually do anything about it. Not only can He actually act in that situation, but He is the one who can sustain you and care for you and show you His love and calm you wayward and all sin-messed-up heart that you might actually grapple with the truth of things and come to submit your emotions to the very word of God. But understand part of that reality, even I would argue a good part of that reality, as David also learned in the fourth lesson, is that it's not simply that you just embrace the hardship, right? But that you can then look at God and say, God is a God of vengeance. God is a God who rights wrongs. And I can leave vengeance to God. I can trust that he will do what is right as the righteous judge. Notice this. I'm going to go through this rather rapidly, but in in verse 9, he just pours this out. Confuse, O Lord. Divide up their tongues. He's saying, just shut them up. Don't allow them to speak anymore. Cut their mouths off, so to speak. What he's alluding to is the Tower of Babel, right? where there's that confusion of language and they're driven and broken up. That's what he's saying for these men, but he's not done even just here. In verse 15, look with me again. Notice what he says. Let death come deceitfully upon them. Let them go down alive to Sheol, for evil is in their dwelling in their midst. Right? We already know how evil these men are, but he just looks at them and he says, swallow them up, Lord. Swallow them whole let them go down to the grave screaming like the sons of korah did when they rebelled against moses in the wilderness the reality of what he's looking at he's just saying god these men are wicked they're evil in every way shape and form and you know this you've promised to judge evil you've promised to save the righteous and so i'm asking you do that you've promised to redeem and to snatch me from harm do so judge the wicked. Swallow them whole. We look at that and we're like, I don't know about praying like that. Beloved, it's actually a good and right and proper response for you to look at unrepentant evil, meaning the one who is bent in their way and will not ever change, the one who does not fear the Lord, and ask for that. Don't forget in the midst of that, that part of the way God will resolve justice is through the cross. But recognize that's an entirely appropriate response to evil in this world. Judge evil, Lord. No matter how you look at it, God judges evil, okay? Understand that. If you see his wrath poured out upon the evildoer, that's him judging evil. If you see his wrath poured out upon the person of Jesus Christ, that's him judging evil. If you've missed that, if you forget that, you've you've missed the whole part, so to speak, okay? Okay? The presumption behind everything in this section, especially as you look at verse 19, is that there's not just vengeance that can be poured out, and it's important that we get that. Notice what he says. He says, God will hear and answer them, right? We already covered this one a little bit. He's talking about this unchanging one, the one enthroned from of old, and he says, within those whom there is no change, those who do not fear God, God will hear and answer them. The presumption, again, is that if they do not change, if they do not come to fear the Lord, what will be poured out but swift, unending, unmerciful judgment? And God is righteous and just and good to do that. But if they do change, if they do come to fear the Lord, God is righteous and just and good to give them grace. Is that not what he's done for you if you are in Christ? Vengeance, in its rightful expression, is pure and holy and good. No matter how you stretch it, vengeance must be poured out. Vengeance is either poured out upon the one who rejects Christ, or vengeance is poured out upon Christ himself in the one who embraces Jesus by faith. But vengeance, nonetheless, must be poured out for sin. It must be. Part of what it means to just take refuge in God is embracing that reality, right That it's hard, that life is a wave kicking you while you're down, but that God is the one who is God of vengeance in all things, but He is ultimately the one who has the freedom to give grace and to take His vengeance and pour it upon Christ himself. In the midst of that, what I want you to see as we get towards the end of it, I'm actually out of time, essentially. What David has done is in every way, shape, and form looked at God and said, I have made you my refuge and strength. His confidence has not come from the fact that he himself is able to free himself from persecution and harm. All he's able to do is come back to the place he started. That is, he has made God his refuge and trust. And though his trust has wavered, though he has been you know, forgetful of what's true, he has ultimately grounded himself back in the reality of his faith. God is the one who has declared himself to be the righteous and good and holy and just and loving Father toward me. And as you continue to see him pour out his heart in prayer, he just he reflects upon this more and more and more throughout the Psalm. Verse 16, right? You can start to see all of this confidence is just brimming to the surface. He says, I'm going to cry out to God. God will save me. Verse 17, I will pray continually, even as I'm complaining and murmuring and every bit of it is just, ugh, I don't want to do this. But he says, God will still hear me. Verse 18, he says, I have enemies on all sides. God will redeem me and snatch me from harm. Verse 19, even though these enemies pretend as if they don't have to answer to God, he just says, God will hear them and answer them accordingly. Right? God will do what is right and just and good. As you come to the final two verses then, keep all of this in mind then, that the point he's been driving to all the while is that God is the one who is his refuge and strength. Throughout every bit of these lessons, that's what he's been moving towards. And you just see this full confidence on display of a man who started off incredibly rocky, but he didn't magically just get here. Right? He was an ordinary person, struggling with doubt and fear and even depression, just like many of you do. But all he did... Was go back to the Lord time after time and recognize that I don't have to be a man of great strength. I don't have to be an emotionless rock all the time. I don't have to be the one who is self sustaining. The Lord Himself is my sustainer, the Lord is my refuge, the Lord is my strength. He's a man of great faith but even his faith, I want you to see, is just not this rock-steady thing that never vacillates. He's ultimately just continually taking everything and saying, who is God and how am I going to put this into submission to this reality of who God is? That's why he didn't flee. That's why he felt confident to pour out his heart to his God. All that this psalm does, us, or does for us, rather, is just take David's example and, and thrust it in front of our face. And not in a way that says, oh, look at how much you are continually screwing up at this. It does it in a way to show you what he goes to teach you at the very end of it in verses 22 through 23. Cast your burden upon Yahweh, and he will sustain you, and he will never allow the righteous to be shaken. But you, O God, will bring them down to the pit of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit will not live out half your days or their days, but I will trust in, you. in other words, a simple instruction that David brings all of us to here, at the very end of it, from the school of betrayal and affliction, is he says, God will sustain you. God will not allow you to be shaken. God will judge the wicked. Therefore, trust in God. It's the same thing Peter tells us in 1 Peter. He says, cast your cares upon the Lord. Why? For he cares for you. Everything is reeling towards this end. You bring your burdens that you hold in your hands and lay them upon the Lord himself. Not that you put them before the foot of the cross like we so often hear. You literally give them to the one who is the burden bearer. He takes them and carries them. And he sustains you in the midst of it. And in every way, I want you to just simply see as we wrap things up that... Ultimately, we see the purest expression of this through Jesus Christ as he poured out his life on behalf of sinners. We saw that he suffered and died and was betrayed in the worst way imaginable. He was betrayed by his own countrymen, he was betrayed by Judas, but he was ultimately, beloved, betrayed by you and I because we loved sin. It was our sin that nailed him to the cross. And yet, in spite of this, scripture says he counted all of this as joy. All of it. That's a miracle of miracles, is it not? He would come and endure the punishment that you and I deserve as the betrayers of the Son of God. He came, and instead of consuming us in blazing, white-hot, righteous wrath, he gave life. He forgave you if you believe in him. In light of that reality, if you're not a Christian, I, for one, just would you not just come to this one? who saves? Would you not make him your refuge from the storm that is to come that is God's wrath? But for you who are the Christian, oh beloved, would you not just come before this same one and recognize that if he is able to deliver you from the power and stain of sin, if he is able to free you from the wrath to come, he is able to be your refuge and strength in the midst of every other thing in this life, no matter how hard it may be. Cast your burdens upon the Lord, for he cares for you. Look upon all of creation and see that he is the one that's sustaining you. This is not some broad applicational truth. He sustains you. Ultimately, he's going to come and redeem all of creation. And on that day, he will redeem you and glorify you. And none of the hardship and sin that so often accompanies your life right now will be part and parcel to what you experience forevermore. Is he not a mighty God who upholds us by the might of his hand and will safely carry us to the very end, no matter what trials we may face or betrayals we endure? So my final word to you today is cast your burdens upon this one, for he cares for you. Let's pray. Father, I I thank you that you have given us such rich truths about who you are in your word. But these are not merely truths that we embrace in a mental way. These are not merely doctrines we profess to believe, but that we can look upon our lives and in the lives of your church throughout all of history and see that you are the burden bearer. Most clearly, we can see that Christ himself is the one who bore our cross, our sin, Our ultimate shame, he was the one who took the burden in full. And oh, that we would be a people who never forget this reality, that we would live with our lives and hearts in submission to your truth in the word, that we would recognize in the midst of the humdrum daily life we live that ultimately it was Christ who has cleansed us and redeemed us and saved us and he will glorify us on the last day. May this always and evermore be our hope and our joy. Give your people a willing heart to submit themselves to you. But I pray moreover, Father, you would give them a joyful heart, knowing that they have been forgiven if they have trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you are the one who has cleansed them from their sins, and you will not lose one, but raise them all up on the last day. And so let their trust be in you, for you uphold us all by your mighty hand. We pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.